This is the test episode of Cinescope, and today, where we're going, we don't need roads. Welcome to Cinescope, where our goal is not to criticize or to assign ratings, but rather to celebrate the movies we love, exploring story, characters, music, and relevance to the world around us. I'm your host, Chad Hopkins, and with me this episode are Mr. T.J. Draper and Mr. Joe Darnell to talk about one of our favorite films, Back to the Future. But first, how are you guys doing? Hi, Chad. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm doing well, Chad. Thank you for having us. I'm excited. It's been a while since we've podcasted together, and we'll talk about that history here in a minute. But uh, yeah, something's anyways. changed, Chad. You're you're in the driver's seat. Yeah, this is a little bit different. I was sort of getting my sea legs and trying to figure this out. <laughs> I think I think this is an alternate timeline. This wasn't oh, it, meant it to just happen. might be. <laughs> Chad, did you go back and do something? Maybe this is the uh, Kelvin verse. If we're talking Star Trek, <laughs> maybe it is. Okay, well, uh, I, I figured I'd let you guys introduce yourselves first in this new podcast. Uh, so, TJ, how about you go ahead? Oh, uh, sure. So, um, anybody listening to this podcast may know me from the Movie Bite podcast. That is a podcast I used to do with Joe Darnell, and then later, Chad, you joined us as a a host. In fact, you you were a host in place of Joe. I say us, uh, so you kind of replaced Joe. Um, not, not that Joe is replaceable and not that you're replaceable, Chad. That's right. not what I'm trying to say at all. Uh, so exactly this is an introduction is off to a great start. But, uh, <laughs> so anyway, yeah, we did the movie by podcast. There was 150 episodes. Uh, we were talked about mostly new movies and, uh, uh, so we, we have some things in the works for another show, but that, that is not yet materialized. So, uh, that, that's what most of people may know me for. I'm also a web developer. Uh, I work over at uh, my, you can see my portfolio and stuff at buzzingpixel.com. Great. How about you, Joe? So I am uh, a family man. I spend a lot of time working from home. I live in the outskirts of Atlanta, Georgia. I am a professional designer. I've been in the design and video production business now for about uh, 15 or some odd years. And uh, these days I'm independent, but I have some very large clients that work out of their offices fun stuff. But all along the way, I've been interested in producing things like uh, writing for my own blog or showing up for podcasts. Uh, back in 2012, I had a movie YouTube like review show with a particular organization here in town. And it was great. It's where I got, um, you know, my feet wet with movie reviews. We cranked out a lot of reviews that year for movies of uh, the year 2000. 11 and then moved on into 12 and beyond that into movie bite with tj and since then i have had a, a technology podcast a coffee enthusiasts podcast which is still in production and hope to do mo many more in the future just uh, taking one podcast at a time yeah and uh i listen to both of your podcasts joe and they're both great and uh i'll recommend them again later but everybody should go check out both tectonic and top brew Awesome. Thank you. I appreciate that. If you like coffee. <clears throat> Which I don't... happen to have a cup of coffee right next to me. So just for me. You addicts, you. Yeah, <laughs> if you don't like coffee, you can listen to TJ's Diet Coke show. No, I don't like Diet Coke either. <laughs> I, I don't drink any sources of caffeine. Caffeine-free Diet Coke. I am caffeine-free. I've been caffeine-free right for five years. Wow. I, I, I can't get rid of the tea and the coffee myself, but I, mm -hmm. I don't do much soda, so that's good. Yeah, soda will kill you, man. I am all about the soda and coffee, so uh, come to me. So the soda podcast. Brother. It's a soda podcast. Welcome to SodaCast. Soda <laughs> Anyways, um, so my name is Chad, if you didn't know. Um, I have, I, I guess you could say, a long background with movies themselves. I, I started off young, 01. I was nine years old, and the Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone movie came out, and uh, John Williams just so happened to compose a pretty fantastic soundtrack for that. And uh, listening to that separate of the film, I realized, you know, music can tell a story. And from there, it just sort of branched out into music can support a film, music can do this, music can do that. And then that branched off into exploring movies themselves. And so that grew into Chad Likes Movies, which I, was I my question about the soundtracks. Yes. Um, so do you think that Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone is the best soundtrack of the, of the Harry Potter soundtracks? Yes. 
Mm. Is that contrary to your belief, TJ? It is. It is. But this is your show. I just I just wondered. I was curious. <laughs> what would you say is your favorite? Probably seven. Uh, I liked six a lot, but probably seven. Uh, Alexander Desplat. Hmm. Yeah, that one is a great one. I love both the Desplat scores. I've only heard the greatest hits from the Harry Potter soundtracks. So I need to go back and listen to all of them. Yes, you do. I have a playlist with all eight films, and it is glorious. They're all good except for Patrick Doyle's contribution, which is pretty terrible. Exactly. Yes. <laughs> but that's another podcast. Yes, it is. So anyway, celebrate. <laughs> exactly. So um, Chad likes movies is where we left off, and that's where TJ and Joe both found me, mm-hmm. or I found them um, some way or another. And I was listening to Movie Bite when, as TJ mentioned, I was invited to come in and uh, step in with when Joe had to step aside. You were a fan before it was cool. I was. In <laughs> fact, uh, w- I have very vivid memories. And I've talked about this on Movie Bite, but I have a very vivid memory of uh, listening to you guys recording your Back to the Future episode live and yes. furiously typing away. <laughs> um, but today we're not disagreeing with each other on things, I don't think. So we'll see. No. Um, so participating in Movie Byte led me to podcasting more, listening to more podcasts. And then last week, actually, I was watching a movie you've heard about, I'm sure, called Tomorrowland by Brad Bird. Mm. Have either of you seen that movie? I love that movie. Yeah. Yeah. Very familiar. It, w- it was a movie that had a lot of hype building into it. And for a lot of people, it didn't pay off that hype. And yeah. I can understand it from one respect, but uh, I've always loved the movie. And um, I don't know, I was watching it last week and I was almost angry in a certain extent because Brad Bird is a fantastic filmmaker and this movie is populated with all these excellent ideas about hope and joy and inspiration. And it just got me into this mindset that, you know, movies aren't always about the perfection. It's they, A movie doesn't have to be flawless to be perfect in one uh, uh, one respect or another, you know? Yeah, it doesn't have to be about the pursuit of perfection. It can be about the pursuit of happiness. And I think that that's an example of a film that tries to do that for necessarily a narrow audience and tries to appeal to a broader one. And maybe it just kind of fell flat with a broader audience, but I think that there's plenty of us who can appreciate the themes in uh, Tomorrowland and what they were trying to achieve. So I, I don't think you're an oddball for liking that film so much. Well, and I would say to your point, Chad, that it goes even uh, like the, the problem goes deeper than that. Like people are in a mindset these days where they love to criticize stuff so much. Like I was just talking with a good friend of mine on Facebook about uh, Star Trek Beyond. He had just seen it and he hated it. And he had all these criticisms and all these things about it. I'm like, I, you know, the movie's not flawless. I'm not going to pretend it's not flawless, but I I enjoyed the heck out of that movie. It was, it's my favorite of the of the new three you know, Kelvin verse Star Trek movies. And I just don't understand this, this, uh, this place that people come from where it's like, if it's not perfect, I just can't take like, nobody's saying Star Trek Beyond is perfect, but I think it's, it's one of the better Star Trek films. So I, I don't know. I just, I, I get frustrated with people like, like you're saying, Chad. A lot of people want to be serious about their hobbies or even what they're writing for or recording for professionally. And if it's a movie review show or a movie review article, I think that people just think that if they're going to take it seriously to be taken seriously, they have to sound like a critic. They have to be more negative than positive. And Mm, that's not necessarily right because what readers and listeners really want to hear is what do you like? Because they don't want to watch the things that you don't like. They want to watch the things you do like. And so you'd be a lot more helpful if you would tell people about the things you like and encourage them to enjoy something like Back to the Future. I could see where, Chad, if something like this film and Tomorrowland, and I'm sure many others you're going to review on your show, would fall into a category where if you listen to what the critics have to say, they'll spoil the movie for you. But if you right. listen to some fan that just enjoys a thing for its own good pleasure, and you go into it as a member of the general audience that's just looking for a little flight of fancy, you'll be very happy. You'll be pleased with the end result. It's it's not intended to be taken seriously. This is you know motion pictures for entertainment. Exactly. And that's exactly where this podcast idea was born from, was watching Tomorrowland, watching all these great ideas being featured on screen, but the movie's still getting shot down because it wasn't somebody's ideal of perfection. So I 
the very next day I was sitting there and I thought, you know, what if there was a podcast where we just talked about movies we loved and what we loved about them and um, everything that entails. And so the Cinescope podcast was born. And um, I'll go ahead and take a minute to explain the name. So Cine, of course, means cinema, movies, film, etc. And then Scope is using this definition that I found online, which reads extent or range of view outlook, appreciation, operation, effectiveness, etc. And so with that title, Cinescope, I am looking to explore cinema, to celebrate cinema, and to really talk about the things that I love while still diving in deep to a movie. So that's what we're here to do. Um, and just as a general outline of this podcast um, for the future, I uh, don't have a lot of strict criteria involving uh, what we're going to be talking about, but typically we're going to be talking about movies that have been out for a while, uh, probably at least a year or older or available in home media. And we're not always looking to talk about the classic films that everybody agrees are already awesome. We're looking for a broad range of uh, genres and types of films, and we're just going to be talking about movies we love. And that is all encapsulating. Sweet. I love it. I think then uh, if that uh, covers the groundwork for the show, there's just one thing left, Chad. And what is that, Joe? It hadn't been something that we discussed previously, you know, starting the show. And that is, how do you want to address spoilers? Because everybody's just dying to know. You got to let the cat out of the bag. That is a good point. Well, for this podcast, it is going to be a very spoilery podcast. We're going to be diving into the movie, talking about everything from character motivations to relationships to story elements to the soundtrack. Uh, we're going to really dig in deep. And by virtue of seeing the movie title in the podcast episode, you're going to know this is a movie that we love. And I'm hoping that you're only going to listen if A, you've already seen the film and you love it too, or B, you don't care about spoilers. And so that being said, we are going to be talking a lot about spoilers today when we talk about Back to the Future, which is my favorite movie. Just to clarify, Chad, are we talking about all three or just the first one? We are just talking about the first one today. Okay, good. Okay, so are you guys ready to dive in? Yes, please. I am so ready. Excellent. Okay, so a few stats about this movie. It was released on July 3rd, 1985, which means we just recently celebrated its 31st birthday. Woohoo, I am so old. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it was directed by Robert Zemeckis, who d also directed Who Framed Roger Rabbit, Forrest Gump, Castaway, The Polar Express, and many other excellent movies. It's, uh, he's a great filmmaker. He's my favorite filmmaker. It was written by Zemeckis and his partner, Bob Gale. And the music was composed by Alan Silvestri, who has composed most, if not all, of Zemeckis movies. And he is also more recently known as composing the Captain America, the First Avengers soundtrack, the Avengers soundtrack. And he's also going to be composing the next Avengers movies directed by the Russo brothers. So he's, that's something to look forward to. He's so fantastic. Yeah, he's so great and definitely one of the best composers to feature in the MCU so far. Oh, and lastly, best, without question. Oh, if you say so, TJ. Maybe we'll talk about that in another episode. <laughs> <laughs> Without this movie, Yes, and this movie does star Michael J. Fox, Christopher Lloyd, Leah Thompson, Crispin Glover, and Thomas F. Wilson. Okay, so to start off, guys, uh, what was your first experience with this movie? Do you, do you remember the first time you watched it? I would say that it was probably when I was about seven years old with my dad and my older brother. They like to watch movies, uh, you know, for guys, uh, family guys that like to watch movies back in the 90s. So um, the year must have been around 1993. And dad just wanted to show us the movie because he loved it so much. He went back to see it, I think, at least twice in theaters, which is really rare for my dad. He loves to watch a movie once and move on and mm -hmm. never to return. But this was one movie he wanted to watch twice. So he got a copy and um, we watched it at home. We had some pizza and it was pretty cool because it was one of the first movies that we sat down with a conscious effort to watch with our dad. 
and he would explain a couple of things to us along the way because we were not familiar with time travel yet and we had never seen you know, live action adults in a movie. I mean, you got to remember back in the early 90s, we were still, you know, playing the NES and the Super Nintendo was still new. So I spent most of my time on video games and uh, every now and then watching Saturday morning cartoons or the latest Disney feature. I didn't really watch any live action adult films. So this was the first one of the first films I was ever introduced to besides the original Superman with Christopher Reeve that had live action, had anything to do with a car, had anything to do with drama. And uh, apart from Abbott and Costello was in uh, the genre of comedy. So uh, yeah, it was, uh, it was a big deal. It was, one of, it was monumentous for me. I remember my dad's impression of the film. And just the one thing that really stood out to me that first time was really believing that they were in real peril in the 50s, that terrible things could happen, that, you know, the doc might die, you know, Marty might be tracked in time, <laughs> he might cease to exist. These things actually concerned me because I didn't know yet from enough experience that usually movies want to leave you with a happy ending. Right. So I perceived was not very comedic. It was, it was more intense and action and, you know, serious and more like a thriller. Like this is really creepy. You know, Marty is vanishing in time. Where did his hand go? Where's the music coming from? <laughs> you know, that was something that really affected me. So like when, when the car would break down, oh man, I was breaking into a cold sweat. <laughs> I just have right. one question, Joe. Mm-hmm. Is monumentous a word? It is now. <laughs> I'll go back. It's a joke. I'll, I'll go back and add it to a dictionary. <laughs> okay, perfect, perfect. King James English. It's very cool that you have such uh, vivid memories of something you saw so young. And I think, you know, even the movies I remember seeing at that age, I have pretty strong, vivid memories of uh, that first experience. And so it's very cool that Back to the Future was one of those early experiences for you. What about you, TJ? I do not have any memories of seeing it for the first time, but I believe that's because I, I basically just have always, like, it's just sort of been there. Like, because I was three years old when these films, when the first film came out, and I'm sure that my uh, parents got it on uh, home video, like, as soon as it was available, and I just don't have many memories of my time as a three or a four-year-old. I have, like, one or two. Mm -hmm. So, um, I just, I've sort of just always, like, I've just sort of grown up with it. Um, so, Back to the Future is just kind of a, one of the backdrops of my childhood, that and, and Star Trek. Um, you know, and there's a couple others, but but Back to the Future was a big part of my childhood, and, and I watched it constantly, uh, you know, within reason, I suppose. Right. Well, for me, the first experience I really remember with uh, Back to the Future was when I was 10. I remember being at my grandparents' house and it was playing on the TV and I don't remember what part it was at, but I remember it being on and I remember my parents making a comment about how they liked the movie and how they thought I would like the movie. And I don't know if in that instance I actually watched the whole thing. I imagine I probably did, but I don't remember any specifics of watching it for the first time. But I do remember the fact that I've always enjoyed it from the moment it's been in my life, it's always been one of my favorites, if not my very favorite from the very beginning. And uh, so that being said, that, that first Christmas after that experience, I got the whole trilogy on DVD and I watched through every single special feature. And I've done that several times since on the various Blu-ray editions and box sets that have come out. And it's just always, like you said, TJ, it's always been one of those movies that has just been there it's just always been a part of me hmm. and there were dvds when you were 10 yes i'm <laughs> sorry so, TJ. you were such a whippersnapper. <laughs> <laughs> no 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 tj you're just really really old tj's really old, like born in the yeah, early 80s I'm, I'm in what we call the dirt division i'm as old as dirt so <laughs> you're as old as this movie yes not old. older i'm older i'm three years older than this, than this movie <laughs> I, I would say, uh, just, just following up on, on the fact that it was sort of a backdrop in my childhood, I, I don't think as a child I appreciated it as much as I should have. I, I loved it, but it, it wasn't like, and I watched it again today just uh, while I was working out actually on the treadmill um, and on the elliptical. <laughs> um, mm -hmm. But uh, so I watched it again today and I just, what what a great movie. Like I my appreciation of it has just grown over time. Like, cause, because when you grow up with something, you don't necessarily appreciate it as much. Right. But now that I'm 
older and more, you know, uh, I guess you could say critical of films, in, in, not in a bad way, but in a way where I, 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 I examine them and I kind of pull them apart sometimes. I mean, I certainly do watch stuff and just, you know, to some extent turn my mind off. But more, more these days, I watch them to, to kind of see what makes them cool and see what makes them tick. And, and this movie just has so much going for it. And my, my appreciation for it has just grown over time. Right. And that sort of goes into what my next question was, which is, uh, has your opinion or experience with the film changed over time with repeat viewings? What about you, Joe? I think that it has definitely changed over the years because as I matured, I appreciated comedy a lot more. Honestly, I, I just didn't, I wasn't quick to understand humor of this sort. I didn't really gravitate to these sort of films for their comedy sake. Right. So like I said, I was taking it rather seriously. And uh, my dad didn't tell me to do otherwise. He, he's introverted in nature, and he just doesn't talk very much. So when we would watch a movie, uh, our comments were more about like, wow, that was a great performance. And wow, that looked really real. And wow, we love the music. It wasn't things to comment on, oh, did you get the hilarious line? You know, like we, we weren't those people. We weren't quoting the movie so much over the years. So with time, I, I appreciated just how funny this movie was. It's a great product of the era. And I appreciated those things more and more so. And it also, it's one of the few films I really enjoy for its 80s nostalgia. So I can't say that I always felt that way. I felt very strongly <laughs> opposed to uh, things of the 80s and 90s growing up. And anything that offered an escape from anything that looked like a trend or a product of the times uh, was more than welcome. And so now I look back on it, I'm kind of like, oh, it wasn't all bad. There were some very nice things. And I certainly appreciate the sentimentality of the film. They appreciate it's, uh, It knows what it's doing. It knows that it's toying with not just like time travel being a sci-fi sort of thing and it's cut and dry. No, it's, uh, it, it appreciates the sentimentality of going back to another time when a lot of people think that, you know, America was a better place or it was, uh, you know, the, the highlight of your grandmother's, you know, youth. And, you know, so she looks back on it like the, the good old days. And so th I appreciate that nostalgia. I appreciate that sentimentality more as time's gone by. Right. And that sort of touches on something I'm sure we'll talk a little bit more about later. But this movie has so much for you to enjoy, no matter how you look at it. When you're a child and you don't really understand the nuanced comedy of some of the lines, you can just appreciate the spectacle of it. And then when you start to understand the comedy more, you get that aspect of it under your skin and really, in a good way, start to experience the comedy of the film. And then you, there's the drama and there's there's just so much to take away from this film for fans of any genre, really. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I um, I love that this film manages to pull off sci-fi comedy without being like uh, over the top. Like it's not like it's not that the film is a comedy, but it manages to pull off great comedy in a sci-fi film. That I mean, it's essentially it's it's like sci-fi fantasy. It's like a where do you draw that line? It, it straddles that line so well that I don't even know quite how to categorize it, whether it's sci-fi or fantasy or just whatever. Um, it's, it's like a mix. You got this mix of sci-fi comedy and, and fantasy. And yet it doesn't like, it doesn't care too much about the science. Like the science is ludicrous. Right. You know, that's not the point. It's, it's about the story. Um, so I, I love that aspect of the film. Like, I, you know, to me, the first primary thing that a film has to do is tell a good story and, and, and back to the future manages to tell like one of the best stories. Uh, it, it's, you know, and, it, and I love that it captures the eighties. Like, I, and, and I don't know how, how this works for you, Chad, since you didn't grow up in the 80s. I grew up in the 80s, and this captures the 80s. Like, everything about the 80s is in this film. But let's face it, there are not a lot of good films made in the 80s, and this is <laughs> one of them. Like, like this manages to be a great film made in the 80s, about the 80s, and then and then about the 50s, but, but about the 80s, too, without being a standard fare 80s film. It, it, somehow it pulls that off. And I'm sure part of that is because Robert Zemeckis went with Silvestri, to make a, a real score and not go with some pop synth nonsense that most 80s movies went with. Right. And from what I understand, that was actually a new direction for Alan Silvestri at the time. Was uh, he, he was more known for his lighter, electronic fared uh, yeah, scores. Yeah. And so Back to the Future was really a step into the adventure, uh, sci-fi, grand epic scale, full orchestra sound for Silvestri, which... Uh, he's really stuck to over the years, and he's done a great job of it. 
yeah, it, it's really paid off. Like just, I know we're going to talk about the soundtrack later, but just, just to, to kind of mention it at this point, because we're talking about it. One of the things that, that does make movies not hold up well, and you can already see this when er, with early 2000s movies, you can see it with 90s movies, and you can really see it with 80s movies. When you choose music of the era to carry your film, not that you can't have music of the era. I mean, obviously, Back to the Future has lots of music of the era. Right. But, but it doesn't carry the film. It doesn't help tell the story. It's not underscoring the moments, you know, and, and when, when movies do that, like they choose to go with, you know, the, the music of the era, it becomes dated so quickly and it kind of starts souring. At least for me, most movies that do that, I, I really have a hard time watching them usually. And, and this film doesn't do that. And it's, it's wonderful. One of the best scores out there. Definitely. And you, you spoke about the great story that this tells. So let's move into that part of the discussion. So Joe, what parts of the story do you like the most or stand out the most to you? Oh, one of the things that's always struck me as pretty special about a time travel picture is when it feels like it's a linear progression, even though you're jumping back and forth in time. And these, uh, this film is uh, made in the 80s, so it uh, existed long before a movie had ever considered using flashbacks to tell story. <laughs> and I say that tongue in cheek because I'm sure there were films back in the 80s and before that were using flashbacks, but it feels like it was a convention that became very popular maybe around 2004 and beyond where all the films wanted to show flashbacks and create this time travel narrative, even though the story had nothing to do with time travel. And it would just jumble up a movie and feel like post-postmodern and it was just confusing and disorienting. And a film doesn't have to be disorienting just to hop around. I know people that still wrestle with this pitch of time travel because in some ways it doesn't make entire sense, but we bought into it rather quickly because I think for the majority of the audience, they captured a sense of linear progression following the character of Marty. It feels like there's a beginning, middle, and end, and it doesn't feel like you started at the end, then you flash back to the beginning, then you quickly jump back to the end. But if you think about where they are in time, it kind of is. Like, the movie begins at the end, and then it jumps way back to a time before the prologue, and then it jumps back to the end. But because the story is so well told, well paced, and there is this progression following the character of Marty and his struggle from just being sort of a disappointing teenager to a guy who wants to get his act together and actually do something with purpose. And he accomplishes that for his family and for the town as a whole, Un in some ways unwittingly, in some ways intentionally. He realizes that he can be more than just a guy with an awesome girlfriend back in the 80s. And so I appreciate the time travel like l progression, even though it's not linear, it feels like it. And I like to see how Marty matures along the way. I just, it's a great storytelling. Yeah. I mean, I, that's a really good point. They pick a thread and they follow it through and, and you know, a lot of more modern time travel movies and, and movies in general, sometimes they do this nonlinear thing and sometimes it works, but most of the time it doesn't. And, and this one, like you said, it's, it's not linear in time, but it's linear in progression. And that's a, that's a big deal. Right. It's easy. It's much easier to follow the story. Yeah, and that also sort of touches on one of my things that I like about this story. And what I like about time travel movies in general is figuring out the specifics of the time travel mechanics. And there are several different versions of time travel presented in movies. Like here, you've got the cause and effect example. Mm -hmm. And uh, as opposed to Prisoner of Azkaban's uh, linear set outcome yeah. timeline. Um, and I think both have their merits and both have their flaws. In fact, I think Prisoner of Azkaban has more of my preferred time travel scenario. It is handled uh, really well, for sure. Yes, but I, I and so I think the flaws of the time travel presented here don't really matter because it just works so well in the context of the film. You really buy into the fact that he is slowly disappearing as time is catching up with him. And you don't have to worry about that not making sense. Right. Because, it makes I mean, no sense. And that's fine. right. It, it does it. it. It's fine. It, it works very, very well here. And that's one of my favorite parts about time travel movies in general. And I think another thing that this movie does really well is setups and payoffs. In mm -hmm. fact, back to the future is like the textbook example of setups and payoffs in film. There's nothing wasted in this movie. No, nothing at all from, I mean, the very first shot in the movie basically is you 
scan by under the table when Marty kicks his skateboard under mm-hmm. and there's the plutonium case there and you heard on the news earlier that a case of plutonium was stolen and then later it turns out oh Doc is the guy who stole it this is how he got it <laughs> and there are just the tiniest little drops here and there that pay off in big ways later and one of the the more subtle ones that I think most nerds like us know but a lot of people may not have realized is the twin pine versus lone pine mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, malt name change because he ran over a pine <laughs> right exactly back in the 50s and uh back to the future and this is really present in all three movies the zemeckis and gale are just so good at putting something somewhere that seems insignificant at one point in the movie but later you realize oh that's what that was for and it's fun it's like a treasure hunt you know every time you watch the movie you get to find okay let's see what happens to this item or this this happened here let's see if it comes back at another point there and it's really rewarding in that sense that you can follow along and really enjoy that treasure hunt and and i know we're not talking about back to the future too but they really take that idea to the next level in back to the future too i mean right it's just like there are so many things to find and to and so many little things that lead to big things. Yeah, you're, 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 you're right. They really do a good job with that in, in all three of the movies, really. But for definitely the first and second ones. Right. What, what other parts of the story do you like, TJ? So, so one of the things that I was noticing when I watched it again today is the way this film opens. You cannot, you cannot open a film that way in 2016. <laughs> you just, you just can't do it. Like, you know, just think about any, pick any film that's out in theaters that, or that's been out in theaters in the last couple of years. Any film that opened the way Back to the Future does would people like get up and walk out. I think. I mean, they just don't have the attention span. Right. And this film, like, it, it sets up so well. Like, the, you know, the pan across the clocks, and like you said, the the pan down under the bed where there's the plutonium when he kicks. The the skateboard under just like everything about the opening of this film is so perfect and and one of the things that has stuck with me through the years like i you know i i when i think of back to the future if i'm not thinking of alan silvestri's score i'm thinking of of the huey lewis and and the skateboard and and you know marty you know catching rides to school like that is such a great scene and really introduces us to the character of marty in a way that like we instantly understand what kind of a person this is like he's he's just riding through trying to get through life and you know he he's not he's not trying to be a bad kid and he's not trying to be late but holy cow you know doc set the clocks back to you know 20 <laughs> what the heck doc you know so it was uh it was just great i, I just love that opening scene it is such a great way to introduce you know it didn't have to start with this big action thriller and it didn't have to get off to a blazing start we're slowly introduced into this world like we don't even meet emmett brown for like what what is it 30 minutes 25 minutes or something we don't meet here we hear him on the phone but we don't ever see him until like 25 or 30 minutes into this movie and he's like a main staple in this film i mean it's just it's wonderful it really is any other story aspects or do we want to move on to our favorite scenes Oh, fa- oh, so we weren't talking about favorite scenes. We're mixing it in here and there. Yeah, the only other thing I want to say about the story is that, um, and this is related to what I was talking about, I feel like if, it's mo- if this movie was made today, like everybody would pick it apart. They'd go to the theater and they'd find things to hate about it and, you know, all the little things that they hate. And, and like, thankfully, it was made in an era when people weren't doing that and it has become beloved. Right. Um, but I feel like, it, much like Tomorrowland, I feel like if Tomorrowland were made in the 80s, people would love it. And instead, uh, you know, it's, it, it, it's frustrating. I, I really love this film. Me too. Okay, favorite scenes. Joe, you go first. Oh, wow. This film is just one awesome, fun, delightful, memorable scene after the next. And every few years when I, you know, I usually watch it about every other year. When I catch it again, there's something I'm like, oh, yeah, I completely forgot that that was in there. And sometimes my mind plays games with me because I watched the Back to the Future like uh, making of material over the years and even watched the 90s cartoon show. So I, my memory plays tricks on me and it fills in things that weren't actually in the film. And I'm like, I thought I thought it was in the film and it's not there. And <laughs> to be honest, it's like, oh, the, this is the movie. Oh, okay, this is the original cut. Okay. And I enjoy it for what it is. I really enjoy things to do with getting the, like, the the... The cut back and forth between Doc Brown just getting ready at the clock tower while 
Marty is back at the dance. Right. Th- that that one scene where he he's cursing and then checking a different watch every yes. time he curses. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Just the the thing that at this point in time Marty can't solve things very simply. He can't show up and say something incredible to to thwart the bully. He he cannot show up and just encourage his dad so that he gets the girl. He kind of has to play on the sidelines and just hope for the best and cross his fingers. And there's really no guarantee that rocking it out on the the stage is going to make a difference to anything. And it could even make it worse if he goes up there and he does a terrible job of the play, of the music. So I, I just enjoy the fact that he's really in limbo. And you, and the first time you're watching it, you don't know where this is going. It's such an awkward moment for the film. But if you get into Marty's head, it, the, there's real fear there. <laughs> there's real concern. Right. And meanwhile, his his mom and dad, they're completely oblivious to the situation. <laughs> and they, they forever shall be. <laughs> That's such a rare thing when... You are my density. Well, it's so rare that very important central characters at one of the climaxes of a film should have no idea that it's so important things go a particular way. And so it the the anticipation just skyrockets through the roof. I love that pace of that that moment of the film. What about you, TJ? I love the scene that starts in the diner with uh, with Marty punching Biff and then taking the kid's skateboard and and just I, I love that whole scene in the end you know where he gets the manure like that's the start of a tradition in, in the Back to the Future franchise. Of course, I love that so much. I really, 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 really love it when George finally works up the courage to punch out uh, Biff. Like that is that is just like that is one of the classic moments in movie history. Um, yeah, let's see. Yeah, those are those are the big ones. I mean, obviously, how do you how do you choose? There's so many great scenes yeah. in in Back to the Future. Um, you know, obviously the the climactic moment and all that action that's going on there is is good stuff, even if it's completely ludicrous. You know. <laughs> Um, yeah, I, I just, there's so much to love about the film. It's hard to pick scenes, but those, those two definitely are standouts. Right. And a film full of fun scenes, it's hard to pick just two or three. Um, I actually had written down both the skateboard chase and the enchantment under the sea dance. So thank you guys for stealing those from me. (laughs) Um, (laughs) always here for you, Chad. No worries. (laughs) And the other one I'd written down is just a sort of quick throwaway scene, but it makes me laugh so hard every time I watch it and it's as soon as Marty is transported back to 1955 he's in the Peabody barn and this little kid comes in well everybody comes in in their pajamas and the kid that ain't no airplane and he shows a comic book and it's 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 ludicrous it's it's straight out of a comic book (laughs) right and that that whole scene it's like an airplane without wings It, it 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 really sort of gets you into that 50s mentality right away because I mean the car does look ridiculous. Marty does look ridiculous. And <laughs> it them, really yeah. does play into the tropes of those comic books featured in science fiction back in the 50s. Yeah. And uh, like I said, that, that scene makes me laugh so hard every time I watch. And so I had to write it down. I, I just have to say that I, I love the, the, I am Darth Vader from the planet My mind Vulcan. went straight to that when he brought up Peabody. I don't know why, but they feel like <laughs> the same kind of humor. Completely different scenes and it things. Is. But it's, it's so perfect. Humor. Yeah. Even if you're not a product of that generation, somehow you just get it. <laughs> right. Uh, so what about characters? I think we've touched on it a little bit, but do you have any favorite characters? All of them. <laughs> uh, I Obviously, Marty. I, I love Marty. I love the journey that he's on. And I think that, um, you know, I don't know if anybody listening to this has seen the the footage of the previous Marty. I can't remember the guy's name who played him. Oh, Eric Stoltz. Wow. Eric yeah. Stoltz. And, and what a train wreck this movie would have been. Like, he just was not capturing <sighs> Marty. Right. And, and you, you can't conceive of anybody other than Michael J. Fox playing Marty. And he's so perfect. And I love the character of Marty. And I love the hapless Dr. Brown. Like, you know, it just, there's, there's no way in a real world that he mad scientist would actually create a time machine like he's a complete fake and yet in the movie <laughs> it works perfectly and he's such a great character i have a little faith in the doc come on tj <laughs> he, he knows no science at all he can't even pronounce gigawatt <laughs> but, in, but in the movie universe of back to the future he's so perfect and, and obviously he's a he's beloved and i, I love those two 
But but then like how do you pick because like this this movie was so perfectly cast with the exception of Eric Stoltz who they realized they needed to replace. Um, <laughs> you know you've got um, Crispin Glover. How can you not love this man as George McFly? Like it just like how like he's perfect. He's like, <laughs> you are my density. Uh, Leah Thompson is Lorraine Baines. Like Thomas F. Wilson. Like come on, how do you pick? It's a really rich cast. Yeah, it's it's perfectly cast and it's perfectly acted across the board. Um, do you have any favorites, Joe? Yeah, uh, one standing out, but I want to hear yours first. Okay, well, actually, the ones I had written down were the same ones TJ just mentioned, but I'll walk through them real quick. So George, he's quirky, he's dorky, he's passionate and unsure of himself, but his growth over the film, he has the strongest arc of any character. I oh, think. yes. It, and yes. He, he realizes that, you know, sometimes you have to stand up for yourself and you have to stand up for others and for the ones you love. And it's just a very great moment for him like what you mentioned earlier tj that that scene where he punches out biff and that's the favorite scene i have written down for him um because that moment is just so powerful the way that music builds and the way he stares up at biff as he's mm -hmm. teasing and laughing at lorraine and it's just such a, a great moment to watch him uh realize that he has to overcome this now or he's never going to mm -hmm. and uh it's it's just so good george is so good and then Doc is a loyal, passionate friend. He's knowledgeable. He's dedicated. Um, and even though he's bumbling at times and he's not always the most successful, he he's full of good advice. You know, I mean, he, he's just a good mentor, a character for Marty. He's a good father figure. Even though Marty has a perfectly good father, um, he sort of. I don't know. I don't know where well, I was going he that. Didn't, he didn't have a perfectly good father at exactly. first. Exactly. <laughs> he, he creates a perfectly good father. <laughs> uh, via Doc. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. So, I mean, Doc is just a great all-around father figure, somebody for all of us to look up to, and he's full of that wisdom. I mean, the quote that we're going to talk about more later, I'm sure, is, uh, if you put your mind to it, you can accomplish anything. And that's what Doc has done for me over the years, that um, he's just a great, strong character who gives good advice and is that kind of anchor for the movie. And then last, um, Marty, I don't think you can talk about favorite characters without talking about Marty, of course. <laughs> Obviously. And um, he, I noticed last night that he's sort of the catalyst for every other character's change in the movie. He's sort of like this movie's Forrest Gump where he's present for everything. He's there when skateboards are invented and he's there when <laughs> Chuck Berry's Johnny B. Good is invented. But aside from that, he, he is the one who convinces his mother, okay, maybe you shouldn't drink. Maybe you shouldn't smoke because you'll regret it later in life. Or George, you know, if you put your mind to it, you can accomplish anything. Or even Doc, he gives Doc the confidence and says, hey, this is what you accomplish one day. Help me do it now. And it gives Doc the confidence to continue on all those years and actually realize the the time travel dream to its full potential. And so Marty really is like the Forrest Gump of this movie where he is there for everything. And he is just a great sort of everyman character that I think everybody can see a little bit of themselves in. Hmm. Okay, you're up, Joe. All right. So I cannot agree more with all of y'all's favorites and i think there's just one character we are neglecting that we're overlooking and that is doc brown and marty's trusty steed the delorean car i just i mm. think that the film made a very conscious effort to make this feel like the modern man's horse of the 80s and it's just it's silver it's a beautiful car it has personality <laughs> it goes through struggles it needs the help of the main characters and it also needs to help them and it, it plays like a couple of games on them a couple of times just the, down to the fact that the way in which it's introduced to marty feels like it is autonomous because it's con a remote control car in that moment and it has to take care of the dog like it, it you know the 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 dog's life weighs in the balance in the hands of the delorean and then later in the film you know, all the central characters. But then on top of all that, it's just, uh, 
It's a beautiful car. It's so unique. There are so few cars made of steel. It may be the only 80s car that I actually like, and it's probably only because it's from a beloved movie. Yeah, but more than that, what's really odd to me is I do enjoy the DeLorean just as a car because of its unique features and backstory. One of the things I love about it is that it has the stainless steel structure, which is, you know, incredibly rare. It might be the only car that has a stainless steel body. I'm not sure. Do you know I have a a friend that has one? I'm jealous. <laughs> Who's your friend, DJ? <laughs> uh, he's somebody I know from the web development world. Mm. He lives in, uh, I can't even remember what state he lives in. I, I mostly know him online. I've met him in person, but not very much. My, my thing is uh, yeah. that it just it's a beautiful car in and of itself, but as a time travel device, it comes to life in a completely unique sort of way in the film. And it is the last character with a moment of glory at the end of the film. It has that great moment that it's, uh, it's, 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 it's sending the message that you can expect a lot for the future. Um, and not, not, not mean that to be a double meaning, but <laughs> you know, the future of film of this, of this, uh, film franchise, if they continue it in with a part two, but also you can expect a lot from the future. It's a very optimistic perspective on the future. And so we can really appreciate that these days. Yeah. I think it's very cool that you're considering the car character. I hadn't really thought about that, but, uh, you make a good point that the fact that it was a car and that it's mobile. And that's something that I think Robert Zemeck has touched on in one of the behind the scenes on the uh, Blu-rays is that, you know, they realized this thing has to be mobile for a lot of different reasons. And it really serves the script and the film well um, because it offers them opportunities. Oh, maybe if it fails here, then that means Marty has to do this. Or if it looks really cool here, then this happens. You know, it it, it really is its own character. Yeah, there, there's just a couple of times where you are actually concerned for the car because it breaks down and you wonder, oh no, is the car permanently broken? That can't happen. That, that'd be a horrible ending. Like, you know, forget about Marty in the past. Is the car okay? <laughs> no. Let me break your, your geek heart, Joe, and ask you a question. If you were forced to choose which vehicle you could have, you could have one, but not both. Would it be the Millennium Falcon or the DeLorean from Back to the Future? <sighs> The, <laughs> you, you're not going to believe me, but and I'm not kidding. It would be the DeLorean. Oh, I, oh, I believe it because it's more practical. It, it is more practical, but more than that, I don't trust the Falcon with my life. <laughs> <laughs> you hear me, baby? Hold together. Yeah, I, I, I could say that to the time machine and I'd feel okay. I'd feel like she was listening to me. <laughs> Okay, so let's move on to the music now. So um, I know TJ uh, was listening to the soundtrack earlier today. I was. Joe, have you listened to the soundtrack recently? I have, actually. I have a couple of the best tracks in my favorites of uh, various movie soundtracks playlists. So I hear, I hear it on a Excellent. Basis. So so let's talk about our favorite musical moments or tracks from the soundtrack. So uh, TJ, how about you go first? All of it. Okay. No, I mean, no, no, really. I mean, this is, I would consider this, I don't know if this is widely considered, but I would consider this Silvestri's defining work. Like this, this defined who, for me, who Silvestri was as a composer. And if you listen to any soundtracks that come later, you can, you can instantly recognize it. It's not like Sylvester repeats himself. Uh, right. Whereas I would, I would say somebody like James Howard, he, he kind of, um, not James Howard, um, uh, James Horner. He would, he, he would get into a little bit of repeating himself. Sylvester, has a style that's recognizable. And, and I would say this kind of defined that style where you can even hear, if you listen to the Avengers soundtrack, you can, oh, no, I, I totally understand. This is the same composer who did Back to the Future, but it's its own work. So, so that's the first thing, like this kind of defined, uh, Alan Silvestri as, as a composer, in my opinion, it's his defining work. And, and it's such a great work. Like it, every part of it works well with every part of the movie. So it's, it's really hard to choose favorites. And additionally, I don't have the full soundtrack. I only have the Apple music, you know, all, the themes from all the movies soundtrack and, and some of the great tracks. But as I was listening, like some of them, you know, like obviously the main theme, it's just so classic and instantly recognizable. And it's, I love to listen to it, but, but there's a lot of great stuff going on when, when you get to the clock tower. Like there's, there's a a lot of great stuff there. Definitely. Um, let's see. You mentioned the main theme. Um, that would be in the track 85 Twin Pines Mall. And it's just that, that first time we really hear it and it's big and it's bold and Marty's spinning around the, mar uh, the mall parking lot. And it's just a really great moment in film history, I would say, is the, the premiere of that theme. And mm -hmm. 
speaking of non-human characters, the music is definitely a character in this film. Ah, mm-hmm. you stole a line. I actually had that written down. The music is, <laughs> it is a character in this <laughs> film. I can feel it. What about you, Joe? Along the same lines of TJ, but another thing that probably doesn't get as much attention but deserves it is the music around the dance. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a period, and it uh, really suits the film. But there's a lot of films that try to capture uh, the joys of the 50s dance, and I don't think any of them come, at, uh, you know, pull it off as well as this one does. It feels really enjoyable. Like, I I wouldn't mind being there just for the night to enjoy the music and, I don't know, find somebody to dance with because it's just that good. And then there's that moment or two, there's at least twice, where they leave you in the lurch to wonder, are they going to get any more music? Or is this, are they going to end the show early? You know, because the performers, you know, screw up their fingers. And uh, people get knocked out, and you know who knows what's going to happen. Drugs. Um, and you just, you're kind of afraid for everybody that's enjoying the night, but then the music comes back, and everything is okay. And so when they leave, it you know all those people got their happy endings because the music plays on. And uh, I have that music in a, like a playlist I put together in Apple Music of my own, just to have it embedded in like the, the musical score because I feel like it is a part of the soundtrack in addition to Zemeckis. I'm sure he had a huge part to play in choosing it that was very deliberate and it's very conscious. It's a, it's a very good contribution. Yeah, I would say that the period aspects of this film in general feel very authentic, largely because of the music. From the first music we hear when we get into the town uh, square for Mr. Sandman playing and uh, Davy Crockett and all that stuff. And then <laughs> yes. when you get to the dance and it, it just feels very 50s and it doesn't feel hokey or fake. It, it feels very authentic. Well, because I'm the soundtrack nerd, I have several tracks, specific tracks written down that I'm just going to run through real quick. So uh there's DeLorean Reveal, which is actually the very first moment of score heard in the film. That's true. Um, the very opening crawl with the clocks and Doc's uh, laboratory is all silent. <laughs> and then you have Huey Lewis, of course, but all the way up until the moment when Marty enters the mall parking lot, that is the very first moment there's score. And it's this big semi-atonal crescendo into Doc clumsily stepping out of the DeLorean. And it's a really <laughs> great moment. Yeah, it is. Um, then you already mentioned, or we already mentioned the 85 Twin Pines Mall. And, um, the next one I wanted to mention was Marty's letter, which is, uh, it's, I believe the track starts when Marty and Doc are saying goodbye to each other before the dance. And there, it starts with this excellent solo French horn, um, that man, it's just so good. And it builds into, uh, the soft flute and, woodwind melody as doc is right or marty is writing his letter to doc about what's going to happen to him in the future and um it's just a really beautiful piece of music and then as far as action music goes you have both the skateboard chase and the clock tower sequences which i think are some some of the best action music that you can have in these sorts of films uh, non-space epic films i should say and then lastly i have Tension slash the kiss, which is the moment <laughs> in the encha- uh, Enchantment Under the Sea dance when Lorraine has been pushed away from George, taken from by another guy, and yeah. Marty's starting to fade away. He's looking at his hand. It's almost disappeared, and then th- it's scratching violins, and it it's awful because what's happening is awful, but then... It's torturous. You, you like that part? <laughs> Oh, but then when it resolves, when George takes Lorraine by the hand and pushes the other guy to the side and he leans in to kiss her, it builds into this great melodious crescendo and that melds with the um, Earth Angel song that's happening. And this track that I have actually is separate from Earth Angel. So Mm -hmm. you just get the score that's added into Earth Angel and it, it just fits so well. And it's another one of those classic moments in movies, I think, where... Um, every time I hear that scene or I watch that scene, I like, I have to smile because it's just such a good moment and it, it sounds so good. Um, so those are my musical moments in this movie. And in that way, the music from the dance actually plays the part of like sound effects, you know, fully and less like soundtrack because it overlaps with Zemeckis's music. It's interesting. Right. 
Um, now, the last thing we want to talk about with this movie is the themes, as in like the lessons or the relevance to the to the world at the time of its release or at today. What do you guys think the takeaways from this film are? An actor as president? <laughs> Ronald Reagan. <laughs> that is that is uh, oh boy. Anyway, <laughs> given our current options. <laughs> Yeah, that, that's one thing. Um, uh, stand up to bullies, man, and you can you can uh, put your mind to it and do just about anything you want. There, there are those themes, and uh, they're they're coming through loud and clear. Another fun one that has a lot to do with the uh, turning the story on its head sort of elements, where usually in a uh, family film like this, you would have the dad giving good advice to his son, and then the son having difficulty with it, and then there's really no place for a Doc Brown kind of friendship with a young teenage guy in high school. It just doesn't seem like it fits. We don't know why Doc Brown and Marty are friends, but we presume that they just kind of bumped into each other one day on the street, and for whatever reason, they helped each other out. I was actually wondering that with this watch through this time. I was like, I want to know how they became friends, because yeah, that's kind of weird. Yeah, you figure it's, it's completely boring, like something incidental, like yeah. they were both in line at Burger King one day, <laughs> and one you know made this a suggestion to the other, and it led to an interesting conversation about ketchup and fries or something, and then it went from there. Who knows? Uh, I figure it's that kind of thing. Uh, it just works, though, because at the get-go, you're very comfortable with the way that they establish relationships, but also where people are in their life in the 80s, in the uh, the 80s after it changes, and in the 50s, where all these human relationships are turned in their head. You know, you could potentially give advice to your parents. You could be a friend to your parents, and hey, you could even help their marriage. You don't have to just be the, uh, the you know, loserly, you know, second son in the family that's just waiting to grow up so that he can get a nice truck and go impress girls and eventually live a life once he gets out of the, his dad's house. You know, you, you can be a contribution to society, but also they just break down so many different stereotypes. They, they, uh, they reveal that, you know, your parents were human too, and they, they had their own problems when they were teenagers that you don't even want to know about. And they, it, somewhat, somewhat perversely, I, I kind of enjoy the whole reveal where, you know, Marty finds out all these things about his parents that they swore they never did, you know? Right. Yeah. The film <laughs> is, is boldly being honest, like, look, this is what your parents were really doing. <laughs> and it's uh it's effective. I appreciate that they break down the stereotypes and they're more honest with the audience and good-natured about it. Okay. Well, what I was going to say um was both the if you put your mind to it quote um it's just a big confidence boost and I've always sort of had it in the back of my mind even from when I was 10 years old first seeing this movie is you know if I really try hard um not that I can accomplish literally anything, of course, but it, if you try, something will come of it. And in that same sort of vein, the future isn't set in stone. Um, we have choices that we can make that are going to affect the outcome of our lives. And it's the decision to act on those choices and to make the right ones. And I think that's a really powerful message from this film. And all of that being said, this is really a timeless movie. I think those themes were as relevant back in 85 as they are today in 2016. It's something that you can watch no matter what, no matter what age you are, no matter when you watch it. We could watch it 10 years from now, and I'm sure we'd still be walking away with the same lessons and the same enjoyment because this movie just does such a good job of not dating itself in a poor way. Mm. Anything else to say, guys? I have the Lego DeLorean time machine car. I love it. Ugh. I recommend it. If, you, if you're a collector out there, go find it on Now it's my turn to envy you. It's, it's so good. <laughs> I think I have that lying around too. And you can convert it into the wheels and little uh, changed parts per, you know, part one, two, and three. You can, uh, you know, modify it. It all came in one Let's kit. be honest, though. The, the one in the first film is the one you want. Yeah, it is quintessential. Yeah, though I, I was very fond of the white wall tires growing up. I, I've grown out of that phase. <laughs> I, I, I really feel like I need a DeLorean on my desk to, in order to get work done. I, I may have to go find one. I have like 
six DeLoreans in my room scattered around the place. <laughs> it seems like maybe my birthday is coming up in a few Chad, months. Chad, you're being so, selfish. You, know, you don't need six DeLoreans. Yeah, exactly. exactly. Send... <laughs> distribute, distribute the no, wealth, all, man. All, my, all mine. All mine. <laughs> my final thoughts on this movie. This is the movie that made me love movies. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it's the movie that made me start paying attention to movies from script to story to music to setups and payoffs to cinematography everything is so well done in this movie it it fueled my love for movies all these years and it's it's just one of those movies that everybody loves whether you like comedy whether you like drama there's something for you here it's just a great all-around movie yeah and and lastly i'll just say that it's it's great if you want to enjoy this film without feeling like you have to appreciate it and weigh it with the other two films you you can watch this in isolation of itself and really enjoy it yeah and that's that's very true this movie is was intended to be a standalone movie they had no idea of any sequels and in fact um zemeckis has talked about the challenges of following up on his final scene from the first movie when he wrote the second one um right or, or when he I came up with the second one to say that same thing um yeah because uh, the he said if they had planned to do a second movie he wouldn't have put jennifer in the car because that caused yeah. a lot of problems for the second and, movie. and that's very obvious with the way they treated her i was i'm i, that, I like the second one as much as the first one, but that is somewhat irritating, what they did with Jennifer. Anyway, well, I know we're not here to talk about things we hate, so. Right. <laughs> Sorry. So uh, with that, we wrap up the official test episode of Cinescope. Thank you, guys. It was very fun. Thank you, Jeff. It was a lot of fun, as was this movie. I had a great time. Um, now, for our listeners, if you liked the episode, please consider leaving a positive rating and review on iTunes. It'll really help the podcast out as we're getting it started and trying to find an audience. And sharing it with your friends is another great way to help out. If you liked something, if you didn't like something, if you have ideas of what you'd like to hear in future episodes, you can contact the podcast directly on Facebook at facebook.com slash podcast, on Twitter at CinescopePod, and you can email us at the podcast at gmail.com. Or if you want the easy way out, you can find the links to all of these. You can find the show notes and more at thecinescopepodcast.com. Additionally, as great as Joe and TJ are, this is a call to arms. I'm looking for a fresh, constantly changing cast of co-hosts. We had a great time this episode. I want TJ and Joe to come back in the future for sure. Yay. But the, the idea of this show is that it's going to be constantly changing because we're going to have new voices on to talk about their favorite movies. So if you have a movie that you think you can talk about for 45 minutes to an hour, a movie that you love, contact me, find me anywhere on those links that I mentioned above. And I will definitely try and find a way to fit you into the show. Um, As for what's coming next with Cinescope, while we wait for more co-hosts, we're going to do two more episodes with TJ and Joe, and we're going to be talking about their favorite movies. So with all of that being said, um, TJ, do you have anything you'd like to plug or places you'd like people to find you online? Uh, Like I mentioned earlier in the episode, if you want to hire me to do your web development, uh, you can find me at buzzingpixel.com. If you want to follow me on Twitter, you can do that. I'm very long and rambly, and I talk about a very, very, very wide range of subjects from politics to everything else, and you will probably disagree with me somewhere along the way. But (laughs) but if we can do so in a friendly way, you can follow me at TJ Draper Pro, um, and uh, that's pretty much it, those two places. Okay, what about you, Joe? I am JCS Darnell on Twitter. If you want to find me there and chat about movies, you're more than welcome to. And uh, my blog is joedarnell.com, but I don't write very much there these days because I just haven't the time. Slacker. No, uh, uh, <laughs> lots going on. Don't call me. I understand. Same. I'm in the same boat, man. Hey, I, I, if you mean, oh, uh, you want to chat with me in Slack? Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm all about that Slack. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my. <laughs> Okay, and my personal Twitter account is at Chadadada, and I have a tradition of always spelling this out for people, so here it is, C-H-A-D-A-D-A-D-A, that's Chadadada on Twitter. A-D-A-D-A. Um, what, just like my Manama. <laughs> Chadadada. <laughs> yes. Um, I just want to take a moment here at the end of the first episode to thank a lot of people, um, because this has been a lot of work for me, but it's also been a lot of help from other people. Uh, first off, TJ and Joe have lent me a lot of their podcasting expertise. Uh, this is my first podcast to produce myself. And so thank both of you for all of your help preparing this episode. 
You are quite welcome. I enjoyed watching you sweat the details. <laughs> Thank you. Rolls Thank reversed. You. <laughs> And um, also Ian Crabb and Wendell Jones and Will Dodson, all three of those people are with Sideshow Sound Radio, which is another podcast that I'll mention here in a second. And then Mikey Thistle and Aaron White. And one last shout out to my favorite film related podcasts. Um, there's the Archive of Movie Bite. There is Sideshow Sound Radio, which is a movie soundtrack podcast. Um, there's also Soundcast Stereo and Cinematic Sound Radio, which are also soundtrack podcasts. There's Real World Theology, which talks about how entertainment is not mindless and approaches films from a Christian perspective. And then there's another podcast, last one I'm going to mention now, that is a similar concept to Cinescope called Feelin' Film. It is hosted by Aaron White and Patrick Hicks, and they also talk about movies from a positive light no criticism just enjoying movies for what they are and that is it for today one more time show notes can be found at the cinescopepodcast.com contact me let me know what you thought thank you all and have a good day bye <laughs>